1: Welcome back to Long Island's number one pro-wrestling broadcast, Monty and the Faro. Only seen here out of Indy Music Studios, out of Ron Kankama, Long Island. Abe, show number two. Yes, sir. It's getting warmer in the studio. It's about three degrees now. Yeah, right. I, I had to break out the gloves, but, you know, we're making it work. I think the camera froze. That's why we lost the camera. I can't think of any other reason. It'd be nice if they put some heat on in this place. Anyway, our special guests, and what an honor, Steve (laughs) Kern, Stan Lane, the fabulous ones. How are you guys? Thanks for joining me.
2: We're
3: fabulous. (laughs) It's a pleasure being here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you guys. So, I was talking to Steve before you came on. I was talking to Stan. Um, You guys don't get to talk too often, huh? Like in the wrestling world, do you guys just drift apart just like regular life? or Like how does that work?
2: Well, I mean to condense it as best I can is like we all have our own lives. We all have families. We have, you know, other friends in the same respect. And, I mean, you know, if you don't live right on top of each other, then you like, likely don't communicate as much, but we still stay in touch. I mean, you know, we call them birthdays or special occasions or if, you know, just happen to think about you or something comes up business-wise. But I mean, you know, there's so many guys and, and people you meet in our industry that, you know, to com- keep a close communication with everybody is really difficult and have your own family and life too. So Stan and I are close. And our friendship extends from back before even the fabulous ones. And with that being in in consideration that, you know, Macho Man said it the the best to me. He says, unconditional friendship, brother, no matter when it is. It's just like when you come in and you go out. But it's always the same. You start back at the same spot.
1: Great answer, Steve. What about you, Stan? Is it that you just drifted away from the wrestling life? Or, like, how does that how does that happen
3: you know I think on my end I believe it goes back to my my childhood because I was I was the only child and I didn't have any brothers or sisters so I'm kind of used to being alone and um, I, I don't mind being alone I can entertain myself with you know doing some stuff uh, whether it's here in my music room or or on the golf course or whatever so I, I'm, I've been I've kind of regret it now to be honest with you I, I should have maintained better contact with a a lot of guys in the business. But I I was the same way with with my uh, 20-year offshore power broadcasting career. I don't really maintain a a whole lot of contact with those guys, and I probably should because we're only here once for a short while. And uh, if if I could could go back and do it over again, I, I would probably change that.
1: I think a lot of us would feel that way. I mean, and especially in the wrestling world, I think it's a little bit different, and you guys could correct me, but... You know, you have your real life, like Steve had just said, and your family, but then you have your wrestling family, and you guys build probably a more powerful bond than even like a, a regular schmo sh- like myself. Um, so when you lose your, your 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 partners in the wrestling business, like, you know, Stan, you with Bobby Eaton, um, you know, or Steve, you just mentioned Randy Savage, how does that affect you guys? Uh, Steve, if you'd answer first.
2: okay, are you talking about passing away? Yes sir or you or you just can't find him anymore <laughs>
1: no just I mean, pass- you know,
2: passing away okay okay, I just want to make sure I get it straight because that you know Bobby was my partner too and and you know both Stan and I love Bobby And to me, I put him in the top five in my opinion of the best wrestlers ever to ever step in the ring maybe he wasn't like a greatest speaker or whatever but as a guy that could work and you could always depend on there was that was a guy that i would put up there with kurt henning and just there's only a category of about five that i'd say that mm. but losing them you never lose them i'll tell you as as a matter of fact if you were to look at my phone and look through my contact list on my phone you would see every one of them that's gone that have passed away still in there. And I've had a couple of people looking at, you know, sometimes a contact say, Hey, you still got dusty in here. And I go, well, yeah, I'd feel guilty if I erased them. I mean, you know, they're still active in my mind. It's like, you know, reality is that uh, they could still be alive as close as some of us are. As we, We're separated by miles. We're separated by families and time. So <laughs> I try not to think about them as gone. I just think about them that, that when I die and go to heaven, because I know, because I believe in Jesus, that I'm going to be in a battle royal with half of them. <laughs> well, Maybe not half, maybe a quarter, because a lot of them didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that's what
1: I was going to ask you, Steve. With your powerful belief in Christ, does it make it easier for you to, be, to not be so affected by death?
2: Oh, I'm not affected by death at all. I look through the eyes of faith, not the eyes of fear. I mean, you know, in reality, this is a simple thing. One out of one people are going to die. And when you think about dying, if you're terrified or if you give it no thought at all, that's an opposite. But the idea is I'm at peace. I've lived an unbelievable life. I have the people that I went to high school with, they can't even compare to the life I led after that, except for, well, of course, I went to high school with Hulk Hogan and Mike Graham and Dick Slater and Austin Idol. But that's not the idea is the idea that, You know, God took me through an unbelievable life. I've seen the world 10 times over. I mean, I've done things that people couldn't imagine doing, met people that, you know, you would never fathom you'd meet. I'm blessed. I'm so blessed that I'm at peace that if I went tomorrow, I'm not excited about going tomorrow now, but if I did, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have any regrets at all. I'd be totally at peace.
1: You're a lucky man. I love it. Listen, I'm going to go off screen script a little bit here because i do have a question last week and both you i don't know if you remember the son of sam back in the 70s uh in new york for about a year he was uh shooting people the 44 caliber killer do you guys remember that at all uh i
2: you know i Back then, back then we were working pretty full time, mm. and we heard stories and stuff. But media and and you know coverage and stuff like that isn't. All I heard was bits and pieces, and I I don't really know the whole story about that. But I have I'm real familiar with hearing the name Son of Sam.
1: Okay, but so <laughs> I guess the point of the the question I have, and I'll ask both of you this. I'll start with you, Steve. Is we just talked about Christ, right? And Yes, sir. We're human beings. We all make mistakes. We have problems. Someone like this man who murdered people or someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, more recent history, eating people. Right. But both at the end of their life, well, Son of Sam, David Berkowitz is still with us. Um, he found Christ. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer found Christ right before he was killed in jail. My sure. question to you, Steve, and I'll ask Stan. I didn't even ask Stan how, how big your faith is. But if a man
2: truly wants well, forgiveness. He's a believer. Stan's a believer, I'm going to tell you right now. He'll answer for himself. Okay. But this is my brother in Christ that you're talking to on that other side. Perfect. If I'm, a sorry, man... I'm sorry. I'm mean... sorry. No, it's fine.
1: If a man truly wants forgiveness after committing such horrific things on this planet, does Christ forgive him?
2: Yes. If he confesses that Christ is his Lord and Savior who died on the cross and resurrected three days later, if he believes, truly believes in Jesus Christ, he's gonna be facing him the minute he closes his eyes. So if he wants to make that kind of commitment, then Christ will forgive him. That's a simple thing. It's hard for us to fathom that Jesus Christ can, can forget, forgive somebody right up until the time they die. But that's just what it says in the Bible. I've read the Bible 21 times through and I'm on my 22nd time. And you can't take it out of the Bible. Here's the whole thing. It's the same as... Can you forgive other people for the things they've done? And if you can't, then how can you ask Christ to forgive you for all the things you've done? I mean, you know, to be perfectly straightforward, because I never used a thing being perfectly honest, I be perfectly straightforward. There's so many things that Christ could have turned his back on me for, but he didn't. He accepted me, and he forgave me, and I feel it, and I feel blessed all the time. Is life perfect? Absolutely not. I could give you a list. When I get together with my friends down here in Florida, there's about 40 living in the Tampa Bay area. All we talk about is injuries, and I mean knee replacements, hip replacements. I mean, you know, somebody's got problems in their stomach, somebody's got a back surgery, somebody. But it's all injuries. But do they get over them? Nine times out of ten. So you know. There's problems and all of that, but I do believe that he forgives them, and it's just what I believe.
1: Stan, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, uh, my thoughts are life here on Earth is just a, a wisp of wind. Uh, when you talk about eternity with your your Lord and Savior, that's that's a whole different ball game. Earth, Earth is a three D, three dimensional, to me, and uh, our, our bodies are, are just vessels. Your soul, in my opinion, never dies. I think it it, it it's you know for per, uh, perpetuity, and um, I'm I'm not sure about the reincarnation, but I I sort of believe you might come back. I think I think we're here to learn lessons, and um, when you when you're when you're a believer, in uh, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I think I think the lesson you want to learn is just like Steve said. You know, people trespass against you, but but you have to forgive them. Now you don't have to forget, maybe, but you need to forgive them because Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. He's already paid the price, so that's that's the way I see it.
1: Now, Stan, have you always been a believer in Christ since you were a child, or is it something that you grew into?
3: No, I I, uh, I come from a family of uh, ministers. My
1: my grandfather,
3: who actually, um, I watched my first rest pro wrestling match with he was a huge uh, wrestling fan but he was a a baptist minister he loved johnny weaver and george becker back in the old mid-atlantic days in the mid-60s i was about i probably <laughs> years old and uh, that was back when they had rip Hawk and sweet hansen and aldo bogney bronco lubich the kentuckians and I, I remember very well and he would just sit there and he would just do his do his fist and like the boom boom like that he loved it <laughs> <clears throat> My, my uh, cousin David that, I, that I, I saw today and spent time with, he helped me uh, convince my mother that she needs to, who was 103 years old, she needs to move from independent living to assisted living, and that was kind of a hard deal. But he, he drove up from Cary, North Carolina to help me uh, convince her. He, he's a minister. So I, I come from a, a family background of, of believers, and um, I'm
1: quite proud of it. How about you, Steve?
2: I've always wanted to, but straightforward again, I've just wandered on and off. I mean, you know, I'm always raised in a military family, and my mother was from Mississippi, uh, born on a farm, and that was the way she was raised, uh, as a Baptist, um, you know, young woman, and then My mom and dad moving around from base to base. We changed different denominations from Baptist to Presbyterian to Methodist. And I really, every time I'd start somewhere in school or get into Sunday school or whatever, we'd move. I mean, every two or three years, we moved. And then when we moved to the state of Florida, I was going into the sixth grade, and we never moved again. And I really didn't really follow you know, what was going on so far spiritually, but here's what happened to me. It wasn't until I was about 50 years old that I decided that I had been wrong pretty much all my life about the way I accepted things. And I used a miracle that had happened in my life as a testimony to me of Believing and trusting and having faith was I would witness my mother on her knees every night that I would come home late um, when I was a teenager um, and see her on her knees praying at her bed. And my dad was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And this went on for seven years and seven months and I never saw my mother lose faith and also my mother was really strict when we would sit down to dinner if we were if we start to eat before she'd say grace She'd cut a promo on me. And I mean, you know, after a while, I kind of resented it a little bit when I got a little bit older and I'm going, you know, Mom, you got to say grace every time. I said, can't we say it once for the day? I mean, you know, I kind of was resenting it. I went away to college. Um... And I went to Mississippi College in Jackson, Miss. Right out of Jackson, Mississippi. It's where uh, Ted DiBiase lives now. It's Clinton. And when I was there, they had a evangel, evangelistic thing going on, and I went to it. And everybody was accepting Christ, and I accepted Christ. And I never felt nothing. I didn't see no magic. I didn't feel no magic. So it kind of just went in and out. But then around 50 years old, all of a sudden, I had this brainstorm as How did I survive all of this? From the time I started in the wrestling business to where I was at now towards later, towards the end of most of my wrestling career, I said, how did I survive this? And then I started rationalizing I said, wait a minute. There's only one answer. And here's the way I looked at it. I said, when I was in my 20s, I'd say, man, I'll never live to be 30. I mean, the life I'm living, I ain't going to live to be 30. I'm going to be in a car accident, a plane accident, something. Then I got to 30s, and I'll never live to be 40. Then I'll never live to be 50. And then all of a sudden, I'm 50, and I'm going, man, I sure hope I live to be 60. And it's my whole change of attitude. But it was actually surrendering. And I've got a great pastor down here in the state of Florida that just retired from a huge Baptist church called Idlewild Baptist Church. And I went and listened to him preach. And I took my family. I've got a wife and two children. And we went. And as we were listening to him, I just got so moved when they said, anybody want to join the church, I jumped right up. And I was right down there. And then I just never turned back. Mm. And then I started growing. And when I got a Bible, i um, a friend of mine gave me a Bible that was a one-a-day Bible that you read the Old Testament and the New Testament. At the end of the year, if you read every day, short bet, you've read the entire Bible. And I got turned on because I've never read a whole book in my life. And now I'm reading the Bible, and then I just couldn't stop putting it down. And every day got better and better. And since then, I'm in. <laughs> you know, I've been in. Stan, do you think
1: like both you both religious as I am but do you think uh problems with this country stem from the lack of religion that's going on in this country right now?
3: Absolutely. I think that the probably the majority of people have turned their backs on Christ and I think a lot of people is they probably don't realize it now that don't follow, you know, politics. I'm not talking about watching mockingbird mainstream media, which is just nothing but mind control programming I'm talking about people are actually worshiping a God but but it's Satan I think there's a lot of uh, Satanists around the whole world now and I think there's gonna be some shocked people and I hope and pray it's this year because we've been enduring three or four years of just uh, chaos everything's upside down I'm hoping this year will be a a year of revelation and uh, I, I think people are gonna have to turn back to Christ in order to save the world I think it's gotten that bad. I think when we, when we find out what's been going on with all these missing children and all, all kinds of just underhanded uh, dark stuff, I'm talking witches and warlocks and all kind of crazy stuff. I don't want to get too deep into it, but, but I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think people need to turn back and turn their faces back to Christ.
1: And you guys thought we were going to be talking about wrestling? I bring the fabulous ones on, and
2: you... well, actually, this is a better subject than wrestling right now. More people need to hear this and testimonies than they need to hear old wrestling stories. But sometimes that's what people want to hear too. So no,
1: I, we got I, plenty of stories too. I I know you do, and I and honestly, thank you for your candidness. Right. It takes a lot to uh, stand up for your beliefs, and especially in today's cancel culture society. So I commend both of you for being so honest about your beliefs well, and your here's, thoughts.
2: Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. All the glory to God, first of all. It's not me and Stan and our message. It's all the glory to God. We're not doing this to gain any popularity or anything. We're just telling it like it is. And, you know, people that don't want to hear, you don't think that I'm persecuted for righteousness, the life I led? I mean, I just had a friend text me just today, just today, and said, you know, I realized after I saw you at a party how spiritual you really are. And I thought it was just kind of like a make-believe thing. But he said, I just got out of the hospital with some gastric problems with my stomach. Would you mind praying for me? He said, because I feel like you really are in touch. And I was like, move. But at the same time, I tried to explain it to him. It's not me. I'm a messenger. All I am is a messenger. I'm not you know, a pastor, I'm just somebody that realizes the truth, and I'm going to say it in the Bible twice, in Matthew and in Luke it says, acknowledge me publicly, and this is Jesus, acknowledge me publicly, and I will acknowledge you before my Father. Like Stan said, eternity is a lot longer than this blink of an eye on earth, and I'm planning on acknowledging Him every time I get a chance, so... Mm -hmm. That's where
0: I'm
1: at. You know, Steve, that, that leads me to a tough question for you then, right? You you sure. trained with the great Graham family. Um, Eddie certainly was a tough guy, and they didn't take any crap, right? They, they tested I you. Know. from what I, Again, I'm just a fan going off what That's I okay. understand. Um, so I guess, and I don't know if you were part of it, but, you know, you guys beat up on a lot of guys when they were training. You tested a lot of guys and actually physically hurt them. Um, When you look back at that now, do you have regrets? And I'm not saying you did it. I don't know. I just, from stories, um, do you have regrets at all?
2: Um. Well, first of all, I didn't. I'm not what's classified as a shooter, and I wasn't a shooter when I started. Did I... Did I have to deal with shooters? Absolutely. That was part of your induction in Florida Championship Wrestling back here. And the reason it was is Eddie was trying to instill how important it was to kayfabe your audience and keep it as real as possible. It wasn't to make it any realer for us, but it was to give us respect for it because of his psychology was is if I take a butt whipping for six months every day and get my butt handed to me for three or four hours of that time at the end when some mark comes up to me in a bar or on the street and says hey wrestling's all fake right the first thing I'm gonna say is oh yeah Well, come on outside and let's find out who comes back in that door. That's the kind of respect he wanted for the wrestling business. It was a reality deal in here in the state of Florida. We weren't trying to sell entertainment. When I started in the wrestling business in 1972, we were appearing in front of the same audiences 52 times a year. Every week we were showing up. And we had to keep them interested and coming. We were the same category as a magician. You knew it wasn't real, but you just can't figure it out. Well, Eddie walked that fine line of reality and being entertainment. Dusty Rhodes was the first and probably one of the very few that really got successful here in the state of Florida with a little bit more entertainment value but Dusty had an, a gift of gab and charisma that crossed racial lines. Dusty had no heat, no heat whatsoever, even as a babyface with anybody in the audience. They loved him, no matter if they were black, white, yellow, or polka dot. And and he got in the crowd, and here's the opposite. Jack Briscoe was one of the greatest babyfaces in the state of Florida. You could not see through his work. But he had heat because he was so damn good looking that guys would be sitting in the audience with their wife or their girlfriend. And he'd look at their girlfriend and look at him and say, man, I wish you looked like Jack Briscoe. And now Jack hadn't done anything, but they hate Jack Briscoe's guts like they used to stay when me and Stan were wrestling. They'd say, hey, I wish you looked like Stan Lane. And I'd start laughing because I was the only one over then. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. He's Stan, good like a man. He's a good guy.
1: <laughs> Stan, what yes. makes you become a pro wrestler? What, how does that even happen?
3: Yeah, well, you know, like I said a little while ago, my my granddad got me started on it, and I, I started watching it. You know, when I got older, and um, uh, when I saw uh, Rick Flair, I, I really identified with him because I've been a lifeguard uh, during during the summer months uh, and. and stuff and, and i like that that whole look uh, like the, the, the muscles i like the tan the blonde hair you know beach look and 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 the girls when i heard flair do his do his promos you know you like you know it's gotten to the point where I, I can walk into any bar in the country and women pass out I mean, when i heard that stuff i just thought god this is so good i'd I love to do this <laughs> the way the way it, it kind of worked out was it, it was funny because i was a I was living at Myrtle Beach in the summer of 78, and I was the, the doorman, the head bouncer at the hottest nightclub down there called Mother Fletcher's, and, and I worked part-time uh, at the Myrtle Beach Hilton in the morning uh, doing room service, and, and I got a, a, an order uh, for Four Bloody Marys, Flair, room 1106, or whatever it was, and I went up and knocked on the door. The door opens, and it was Rick Flair. I went, Nature Boy! And uh, we started talking and stuff, and <laughs> off. And, then, and and I was all pumped up then too, you know, and had kind of the same look. And uh, uh, Greg Valentine was down there at, at the same time too, but th- th- I think they just wrestled um, in Conway. And I think that night they were going to wrestle in Myrtle Beach, actually, or somewhere, somewhere close in South Carolina. So they they were staying over for a couple of days in Myrtle Beach, and I I got them. I got him to come down to Mother Fletcher's and be the the guest judges for our world famous wet T-shirt contest. So that's how, how <laughs> we get it, it just it was just fate. It's just being the old adage, being in the right place at the right time.
1: Wow, Steve, back to you. Um, we talked about the Grams. How close did you stay with Mike Graham before his passing?
2: Well, here's the thing. I mean, I spoke it as eulogy and um i you know a lot of people were misled in the state of Florida, and even the ones that we went to school with and grew up with, because that they kind of like, from the wrestling business and being on TV every Saturday and Sunday, and then at the, all these the live events and stuff, they thought Mike and I had become best friends, and we were friends, and I owed the Grams a lot, because they started me in the wrestling business and gave me the opportunity, and I mean, you know, but here it is. This is it wasn't like a sugar coating. I mean, I didn't start in the wrestling business as a second generation wrestler. I was just friends with the second generation wrestler. And I had to leave and I had to move on and I went from territory to territory while Mike stayed here. So our friendship separated by miles and by territories and by experience. And by the time I would come back periodically and work the state of Florida I had changed levels on the ladder. And what I mean by that is there's a ladder you climb up and your first five years in this industry and uh, that generation was about five years, you're green. And to get any opportunities or breaks, you almost had to be, a second generation wrestler or a family friend or something because of the nepotism in the business. And I just kind of went out on my own and made it on my own. But I came back later on when Stan and I split up and I was trying to diversify and get out of wrestling because I just didn't want to be an old wrestler. I was trying to learn something else to support my family. I mean, you know, Mike and I are still around each other. And I mean, you know, we did some business deals and. You know, Mike's gone. So I don't need to try to say anything bad about anybody that's gone. But we weren't as close as I am with Stan or Mm. I am with today. I call Ted DiBiase. I've known Ted 50 years. He's turned 70 today. I mean, you know, Brian Blair lives a mile from me. I mean, you know, there's so many Jerry Briscoe's right here. That's one of my mentors that – He just sent me a thing, want me to go to side splitters and hear some jabroni comedian that probably won't make me laugh, but I'm gonna go because he's 77 and I don't know how much longer he'll be around. So you create so many relationships and so many friendships. People identify and say, well, you must have been really close with him or you must have been really close with him. Well, sometimes, it's just what's perceived by what's presented to people on television or magazines or even just you know um, walk alive. High school friends thought me and Mike would be best friends forever. Well, I mean you know we were friends in high school all the way through high school. But the reason I really liked Mike when we were in high school because he was rich. <laughs> I went to a really I went to a really poor high school. I mean, I'm in my high school parking lot was like 55, 57 Chevrolets and all these old beat up old cars. And Mike would drive up in a brand new Camaro or a Corvette or whatever. And when I met Mike, I was in the 10th grade and we were in a biology class together. And we had this double desk that you sit two people at. And so Mike and I were in the back. And this is when I first met Mike. And he's talking about his dad being a wrestler. And I'm talking about my dad being a prisoner of war. And so we kind of just hit it off, and then we started pulling ribs in the biology class, and then I got sent to the office three or four times, and he thought that would be funny, and he thought I was funny, and then one day he pulled out his wallet, and I had never, ever seen a $100 bill, and he had five of them. And I he goes, well, You want to go after after school here and play some pool up there and then maybe go uh, get something to eat and i'm looking at him go are those real hundred dollar bills and he's going yeah why ain't you ever seen one (laughs) you let me hold it and i'm freaking out right and i'm going this is the friend i need going through school and i mean you know say it like you want to but it was that money kind of attracted me and then then being around his dad who took a natural liking to me not because of me but because of what he respected my dad for a sacrifice for his country he kind of took me under his wing and then they kind of attached me to the family and now i'm on a yacht I mean, you know, I'm in the fastest speedboats in Tampa Bay. I'm in the fastest cars. I am in, mean, you know, and money was no object. And I never paid for a thing from the 10th grade on. So then Mike and I grew close through that kind of a relationship. Hmm.
1: So there's a video out there from Dutch Mantel. You know, Dutch has a pretty popular podcast <clears throat> now at this point. He does pretty well for himself. Right. You guys are... For him. You guys are an iconic tag team. But in one of Dutch's videos, Dutch says that Stan or Steve, as an individual, really weren't getting over. Now, I want to revert back. We had Kevin Sullivan in the studio. I'm a WWE guy, right? Grew up in the Northeast. Steve Kern, according to Sullivan, and I'm sure it, it's true, that you were this close to be put in the Bob Backlund position. So for someone at at that level and being considered to become that champion, I would think you were pretty over. But this is Dutch's opinion on the video. And he says, you really couldn't draw a dime together uh, alone, but when you got put together, it was gold. So Stan, would you agree with Dutch's comments?
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, before, before the fabulous ones started, um, I was, I was the Georgia <coughs> junior heavy. uh, single. I was also the, I had the U S uh, uh, championship belt that I took over to, uh, Japan for, for five weeks. I wrestled against, uh, Fujinami in the salt palace main event. So I, I, I would, you know, maybe, maybe if you're going to compare a, me or Steve to, to big singles guys like you know Hulk Hogan or or Stone Cold or something, yeah, we're, I, I would say I, I am lower. But um, I mean, speaking of mid card guys, you know, to me Dutch is always a mid card guy, and and I, I like Dutch. I'm not trying to knock him. Dutch, Dutch, you know, did some booking. I, I never was interested, <coughs> in, but as far as as on the card, I mean, you know,
1: pot calling the kettle black. Steve, your thoughts on that comment?
2: Sure, I got an easy one. Here's my my whole thing about wrestling. Wrestling is an opinion. Everybody has an opinion and it's all different. No matter where you're from, what you've witnessed, what your experiences are, what your knowledge is, you formulate an opinion. Who do you think's good? Who do you think's bad? Who do you think can do things? Who do you think doesn't have a chance? And, and Dutch is formulating his opinion on his knowledge of Stan and I persim- pretty much from being just in Tennessee. When we both went into Tennessee, Jerry Jarrett was totally lost on what to do with us. He knew he had money because that he stole me and Kevin Sullivan from Jim Barnett at the Omni in Atlanta. And we were working an angle on TBS, and they wanted to see how effective TBS was to go to territories that was the first nationwide show. And so Kevin went first, and then I followed into Tennessee. Well, one of the things I'd already heard about Tennessee was, you don't want to go there. You'll never get over Lawler or Dundee. And so when he asked me at the Omni, would I come? I said, nah, I heard the, you know all of these things about how political it is there. That, you know, I, I, that's just not my style. NWA style was pretty strict wrestling at that time. Now, like Stan, I had held the world junior heavyweight title and dropped it to Fujinami in Sapporo. That was when I was supposed to go be the world champion up in WWF. Then I went through uh five time Florida heavyweight champion, Georgia champion, I was champion everywhere. those belts are just symbols of what you know people think are important, but it's a work, it's a work I mean <laughs> I mean, no matter how many titles I've held and everything, the bottom line is is Dutch Mantell didn't wrestle in the state of Florida. When I worked an Angle with Bob Roop and we sold out every place in the state of Florida and Dusty Rhodes was the only person that could do that and Dusty put me over by saying, well, baby, the only boy that can put anybody in seats in this business down here in the state of Florida is Steve Kern. And it really wasn't true because it takes Bob Roop, Steve Kern and the Angle to do that but i was credited with that dutch mantel had no knowledge of that because that was territorial days that wasn't like public knowledge and when he said when he made a statement like that about you know stan and i couldn't draw he's absolutely right when we went to the state of tennessee i went in there the same wrestler i was in georgia carolinas and florida and I didn't fit. I was like jamming a round peg in a square hole. I was still stiff. I would still light you up. I would, Wayne Ferris honky talk man, asked me if he owed me money. He said, do I owe you money? You slapped me so hard in the chest, I could feel it on my back. I go, brother, I'm into it. I believe it's real and I got to make the audience believe it was real. Bill Dundee pulled me aside and said, you're never going to get over in this territory until you loosen up and become an entertainer. And so I'd never been in a territory where they had the loser of the match eat a can of dog food. I mean, to me, it was kind of like a lot of jokes. But, you know, you have to understand the wrestling business. Just because it's your way doesn't mean it's their way. So you have to be a chameleon. You have to change colors. And exactly what I did, and I went from a serious wrestler to all of a sudden, now I'm doing midget high spots. I mean, you know, and I mean, people loved it. But it was almost like the psychology was there is they want to be, they want to laugh and have fun. And then when they turn up the heat, turn it up. And then then that makes them mad at the heels, and then the baby faces come back. And the advantage Stan and I had, first of all, wasn't Stan and I. It was the right characters, the right time, and we had the right person that really supported us, which was our foundation, Jackie Fargo. He was over so strong in that territory that if Stan and I would have just been the fabulous ones with no Fargo history, we'd have probably had heat for the way we look. We're the only two guys in the territory that worked out. And we were cute. And and when we were men, we weren't little boys. So we would have had heat, but because we were Jackie Fargo and a remake of the fabulous Fargo's who was over like Rover, we got over and we didn't have heat. I mean, you know, and and guys like Dutch and other guys will always have their opinion. But what I see is, is a sad case. Sometimes a jealousy of things, and it, it's just it's just something that happens, and it, it you know it's common. And sometimes people say, "Well, you know, they can't do this, can't do that." He's right, but he's not really given the credit right, and he's got a bad reputation for <laughs> for his opinion on a lot of things anyway. So,
1: well, Steve, you know. Besides wrestling, Dutch also cures cancer and builds rocket ships. I don't know if you know about that. He knows about everything well, in the world.
2: Well, he embellishes a lot of stuff. Now, <laughs> he should be president of the United States at this point. Uh, Stan. Well, between between him and Jimmy Cornette, boy, I've seen a real change in personalities over the last 30 years. I mean, Jimmy Cornette was nothing but a jabroni photographer, me and Stan. And all of a sudden, he's a genius to the wrestling world. And I'm going... <laughs> What the hell happened? Was I asleep for the last 44 years of my career? No, anyway.
1: you're just in an alternative so universe right table. now. That's all. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> Stan,
1: when they put you guys together, were you like, this is gold. I'm ready to print some money here.
3: Well, uh, I, I didn't really know. I mean, you know, uh, Jerry Jarrett approached us and, uh, you know, laid it out to us. And, and, you know, Steve and I both, as Dutch said, I think we were like, mid card guys there. So I was, I was just ready to do whatever, you know, I could to help the territory, but also to put more money in my bank account. So I, I I thought it it was a great idea. Um, and, and then like Steve said, having, having a living legend like Jackie Fargo back us up and do the, do the promos, you know, these are my boys and all that kind of stuff gave us his seal of approval. Um, I, I, I had no idea it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, we were, I, I don't mean to brag, but we were selling out every night and, uh, it was, it was phenomenal. And, and we actually made more money, uh, selling gimmicks and pictures and, and these <laughs> uh, merch brain, you know, that, that was like 30 years before merch was even like really talked about. We were selling, uh, suspenders actually and bow ties and. And baseball caps and keychains and and uh, I mean everything and and our our, uh, our weekly checks for our gimmick sales like surpassed our paycheck and, and that's working on top, you know and selling out. So we were very very fortunate, you know, to have that spot. And I I give all the the praise well not not only to my Lord and Savior but I give a lot of praise to Jerry Jarrett who in my opinion was. Was a, a, a genius as far as wrestling. He he had a, a brilliant mind for for the business, and uh, I miss that guy too. He he was my my favorite promoter. Yeah.
1: So, would it be fair to say to both of you guys, you guys were the first ones to really do these vignettes or these music videos? Is that correct? That's right. So you it guys was right
2: when that, it was right when MTV had just come out. That's where it all came from and it was Jerry Jarrett's idea, and he used his production people, and I mean, you know, Stan and I, Stan was more, Stan knows music, and he could tell you the the tune, the label, the color, what recording people, whatever, by just hearing the song, but he was really, you know, he's a music guy, and he's perfect, and then Jerry Jarrett would come up with ideas, sometimes they're a little, you know, kind of like borderline, I mean, when I ran FCW and had the developmental, I mean, those that talent that's up there in WWE now that went through me, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how many times they showed up a fabulous one's pictures of me and Stan looking like two gay guys from San Francisco <laughs> standing on top of a cake or something and they go, hey coach, what's this all about? <laughs> I said, man, it's a long story, bro. It's a long story. I said, you know, that, that picture right there made me understand enough to buy two Corvettes, a 65 and a 63 or whatever. Stan, new cars, too. I, When he said, hey, this is a good car. Get this one. He said, we had auto traders every day in every city. That was what we read in the car. And we bought cars with our picture money and just had so much, you know, extra money. And it got a little heat, too. But. Imitation like is flattery. And look how many tag teams spun off of us. And there's, there's a book. I got a book over here in my bookshelf right here. It talks about the tag team era and how Stan and I started that whole trend and everything and with the music videos. And what it did was it sparked ideas for other teams. And when I'm never jealous. I mean, you know, I always looked at it like, well, it's one thing to be the beginning and it's the other thing to be an imitation so i said yeah whatever whoever's successful go for it
1: so let me ask you about these video shoots though right so when sure. you look at them they're total the total 80s right but i mean that's like what are they telling you like stare into the camera and lick your lips i mean i'm looking at this and i'm like are you guys just uh-huh. laughing while you're doing this
2: well we busted up a lot of times I mean, you know, there was one where we had, one of the first ones was funny as hell to me because they had us with some horses in a barn, right? And Stan enlightens me out of nowhere that he's got a stigma about horses. He hates horses. He don't want to even get around the horse. He don't like horses. He's just he's a little bit afraid of them. And I've been stepped on them and everything, too. And I'm not a big horse fan either. But I never thought about it the way Stan mentioned it to me. You know, And I'm thinking, you know, you got a point there about them damn horses and stuff. But there were so many times when, you know, it was like, okay, uh, well, kind of turn around and stick your butts out and stuff like that. And I'd, look, I'd just look at Stan and go, as long as they're paying us, stick your butt out. <laughs> hey, Stan, so you're part of this
1: team, two very good-looking guys. I'm sure, I, I don't know if either one of you were married. Stan, I, I know you weren't from a previous conversation. I was. Yeah. So, But obviously, there had to be a lot of women fans and all over you guys. Um Stan, was there ever jealousy between you and Steve, right? Because you're two good-looking guys. But now you're at a battle, right? Like, who's the better looking of this this super team?
3: No, we we were we were much too uh, engrossed in and making money and showing up and, and having a good match. I mean, the 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 women, you know, were around, but they were they were like before the match. You would walk out and they were, you know, high-fiving you and trying to hug you and stuff. But but I mean, we were just, I mean. When, when you're riding riding the top of, of a wave you need to ride that thing all the way you know to the shore so so we were, we're just i mean we were doing them but at the same time i think what' what what really balanced it out was was the fact that that we were also just brawlers i mean we had some knockdown drag out blood bass with uh, teams like the sheep herders and and uh, the moon dog with, with those bones and i mean we 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 would just destroy furniture, even though we were like like the glamour guys, you know. I mean, we, we did all that all that stuff that was really really rugged stuff. So I think that that kind of made the guys instead of being jealous of us or or dislike us because their wife or girlfriend liked us, because they thought thought that we looked good. I mean, the guys respected us. So they they might look like little you know cupcake guys, but these guys will will fight. You know, they'll get down and dirty. So I, I think that's that was a good bout <laughs> tag
1: team. Steve, there's a story out there. I guess um, you guys are you guys are making good money, really good money. Very popular tag team. That uh, in the Memphis area, uh, Coco Beware was taking your guys' entrance, and you took <clears throat> offense to that. Could you share your side of that story?
2: Sure, sure. You know, there's been several different. Spins off of this and I even had to call Stan not not that long ago as a matter of fact because I'd heard Ricky Morton do a podcast and What he told in the podcast didn't sound anything like what I had remembered and then I guess you know So I said well, maybe my memory is different than him Maybe my experience was different than his but where was the thing I was taught in, in my industry by my mentors who were Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., and Hiro Matsuda, that if you had anything that you're protecting, example, your finish, And I use a sleeper hold in the state of Florida, so if anybody uses a sleeper hold, they needed to not use a sleeper hold in the matches before me. Your character or anything like that, which weren't really that established back when I first started, but when we developed the Fabulous One, well, Coco came out and he did a character called Stagger Lee. And we just broke out with the Fabulous Ones, and now here we are in... With top hats and bow ties and the sequin tuxedo. And here comes Coco out and does the stagger Lee, and he's doing the same thing. He has a white tuxedo coat on, a bow tie, and a top hat. Well, I was, I was not only insulted, I felt like that it was like stepping right on what we're trying to dilute and do. And it, what that does is it dilutes what we're doing. Well, we had to travel from um, Memphis to Nashville. And we were in Nashville. And when I walked in the dressing room, there was a small dressing room in there. And there's a little stall shower in the corner and a toilet. And, you know, I was pretty worked up by the time we got there. And I backed into that stall shower and I started confronting Coco. And I started asking him questions. Now, the conversation, I can't verbatim tell you. That's 40 years ago. But I can tell you that I was heated and I was letting him know I wasn't happy with him trying to do the same thing we're doing with our new characters. And it was infringement on what we were doing. Anyway, I sucker punched him. And I did, and I admit it. And that's that's just me. I mean, you know, if I'm gonna win a fight or if I'm gonna be in a fight, I'm not, people aren't gonna ask me who started the fight and all that. They're just gonna ask you who wins or loses. Well, this is what in my knowledge that I remember about the fight was that I sucker punched him and then we locked up and we fought, but we didn't go down. Neither one of us went down on the floor. We hooked up and we kind of got tied up, but everybody was trying to break it up almost right away. And anyway, now Coco's really screaming and yelling at me, you know, and saying, I'm not afraid of you, and calling me names and all of that. And I just looked at him and I said, Okay, well, let's just finish it. We squared off, we win it at it again. But here was the end result. And this is the best I can remember. And this is what I always weigh it on. When it was over, neither one of us had a mark on us. Neither one of us had really gone down and gotten hurt. Neither one of us had kind of quit or said, that's enough, I've had enough. Nobody had pulled one of one of us off of the other one. I never looked at it like I did anything to damage Coco. I didn't beat up Coco, but I never felt like Coco beat me up either. So it was kind of like, the difference is, is the fight that Orndorff had with uh, Vader there. I mean, Orndorff beat Vader relentlessly and he looked like Elephant Man when it was over. To me, that was a fight, but that's the kind of growing up I had. I mean, Coco was not my first fight, but it wasn't one that I'm proud of or one that I won. I never kicked Coco's butt. Here's the deal. Coco's a born-again Christian like I am, and when he got the Hall of Fame award um, with WWE, I was an agent there. Coco out of nowhere walked up to me and we had worked a hundred times. Even when I was Skinner, I worked with Coco there. Never even mentioned that fight. And Coco walked up to me and said to me, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry for what happened in Nashville. He said, you know, you're right. And it took a long time for me to realize that. But when I got the bird gimmick and somebody tried to imitate it, I realized how you felt that night when I did the Stagger Lee thing. So he says, I apologize and I hope you forgive me. And I looked at him and said, man, I forgot all about it. I love you, Coco. There's no hard feelings between you and me. I mean, he's a real man, but the people that tell the story and sometimes, you know, Dutch Mantell is embellished. And he said, we weren't even booked in Nashville. He said, we were booked in Jonesboro and we skipped the Jonesboro show to go to Nashville. You know, first of all, you didn't do things like that or you got fired. You know, you don't skip a show you're in the main event and go to another show to have a confrontation with somebody in the dressing room. But the other, you know, it's I guess it's like opinions. It's like what they saw or what they felt happened. And you know, it's like I told Ricky Morton when I saw him after I heard his podcast, I called him out in Charlotte, North Carolina. I said, you know, Ricky, I got to talk to you. And when I wanted to talk to him, His he said his son followed me and him into a room like he knew that I was going to confront his dad about that. And his son kind of hovered over. And and I looked at Ricky. I said, you know, I I don't know what why he's told the thing you told on that podcast, but I just don't agree with what you told. And he says, well, you know, and he put his hands up on my shoulders and everything. Well, I love you. And he says, well, you know, a a tough guy, you're a tough guy. You want to sucker punch nobody, tough guys, sucker punch guys. And he says, but this is the way I saw it. And you know, it's just what I remember. And I said, okay, that's all I can say. But I just wanted to let you know, I was really let down by that story because I didn't feel like you told it right. And you made it sound like, I got beat up really bad, and for somebody that got beat up really bad and didn't have a mark on him, that was kind of hard for me to swallow when I heard it.
1: That's my you. story. Good for you, Steve. I love it.
2: It's just what, just what I remember. I mean, you know, Stan was right there. I mean, you know, if, if I got beat up, Stan's been in a lot of fights. As a matter of fact, I saw him beat up a guy really bad in Memphis one night, but the guy looked beat up. And I almost wanted to say, you know, like when Ricky Morton's like I want to say, have you ever been in a fight? I mean, you know, who's ever looked at a picture of the Rock and Roll Express and said, "Well, oh, these look like a couple of tough guys." <laughs>
1: yeah, Stan, do you concur with Steve's side of the story?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you said, of course, if. If you go to court and you've got you know 12 12 witnesses you're going to get 12 different stories that's just the way way it is um the the uh the youtube video that i watched of morton it, it was funny i mean he embellished it and and said that coco was was in the shower showering and steve attacked him in the shower now that makes for a really good visual i guess if you want to laugh like we got got coco stark naked lathered up in a shower and here comes <laughs> kern charging the shower and starts fighting. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, it's just like Steve, Steve said. And, and, and Steve called it a sucker punch. To me, a sucker punch is when you throw somebody and they don't see it coming. Now, this shower in Nashville is like a prefab uh, building. And the shower is it's like a little RV shower. There's barely room for two grown men to even stand up in there. They were facing each other face to face. Steve threw the first punch now I, but you know to me that's not a, a sucker punch if you're gonna fight somebody somebody's got to throw the first punch. Steve threw the first punch At that time Steve Steve was known as the toughest guy there in, in, in that territory Coco was afraid of Steve and and when the fight started and they they spilled out of that little shower because you, you can't you can't throw anything in there and they spilled out into the dressing room. Coco was, was saying, I don't want to fight you, Steve Kern. I don't want to fight you because he was scared. But then after they had, they had locked horns a, a couple of times and Coco realized that he was holding his own because he's a tough guy, then, then he went to, I'll fight you all night, Steve Kern. <laughs> see, that confidence built up in him. And But but like like Steve said, you know, that, that there was no blood, there were no marks, and, and, and I'm happy for that because I like both of them, of course. I, I don't want to see anybody get, get hurt. and. If the truth be known, now that this is pure speculation on my part, I I think I think Coco was told to do that. Now I could be wrong, but I I think maybe somebody who was perhaps booking at that time maybe told him, pulled him aside, said, "Hey, the Fabs are getting over doing that stuff. You ought to do it too, man. Try it out." And he go, "Okay, yeah, I'll do it. Do whatever the booker says." Now that that that's just like I said, that's a, that's a theory. But um, but as, as it turned out, you know, Coco's been. From what I see on, on YouTube, he's been in several fights and never lost any of them. So he going got to be a very tough guy. And Steve, of course, is a very tough guy. So it was just it was just a bad deal, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm sorry it happened, but I'm just glad that nobody got hurt.
1: Well, also the best part of it is that Coco used Steve's full name when he was challenging him. Didn't call him yeah. Kern or Steve. He called him <laughs> Steve Kern, which is good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Stan, did you know in 2011 you died? I did. Uh,
3: that was a crazy story. Um, <laughs> my, my phone started lighting up. The guys were saying, Stan, I just wanted to see if you're still here, and and I said, "What is going on?" So I, I called my friend Sal, Sal Correnti, who keeps his finger on the pulse of the wrestling business because I, I I don't follow it. I don't watch wrestling. I hadn't watched it in decades, and uh, so this apparently this truck driver in, in Memphis. Uh, got married and, and told his wife that he had he was Stan Lane of the Fabulous Ones, and uh, she, she believed him. And it's kind of crazy because at that time when they got married, Steve and I were on top and in, in the Memphis territory, all she had to do was look on on TV and uh, she could have figured it out, but apparently, uh, she didn't do that or she didn't want to do that. But anyway, the guy, the guy passed away, and uh, and so, so they uh, sent the obituary to the Memphis Observer or whatever the newspaper is called there, and and, and they don't they don't like fact check uh, these obituaries. Whatever you send them there, they're, they're going to print it. So she said he was one half the greatest tag team of all time, the fabulous one. He was, you know, loved animals and all that kind of stuff. And, and I actually <laughs> heard at funeral they had a gimmick table and they were selling pictures. Of me and Steve, so the guy apparently like favored me, you know, looks-wise. I never saw the picture, but uh, Sal called her up, and, and, and she was like, like Adam, <clears throat> I was married to Stan Lane, and you know, you're wrong, but I I think the, the evidence was so so overwhelming that, that she admitted it. That she said, okay, maybe maybe I wasn't married to him, but I mean, the the family had to have known. It, it was bizarre.
1: Think about that poor lady, like how she looked at her life after that. She thought she was married to Stan Lane for all those years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right, Some gonna... unbelievable things have happened in this business. I you mean, wait. you know, you can't surprise me or come up with something that i I can't say that oh wow you know i would have never thought that had happened i mean you know when i ran the fcw thing and the talent that got developed there there was a lot of times when i'm thinking you know wow this is going to be tough for you and now i'm looking at them and they're making millions of dollars and i'm going like things really can surprise you but You know, things like what happened to Stan, I mean, I just heard that same story about Stan dying again, and I'd heard it a few times, but I heard it just the other day, and and, um, a guy was talking about saying that, you know, they were really saying Stan was dead, and it didn't come to me that Stan had died, so I never really heard that story, but at the same time, what a, I mean, you know, you hear about movie stars that are always told that, you know, they, somebody says, oh, they died or whatever. I mean, I heard that Tom, Tom Hanks died a long time ago or something, you know, and then I saw him on TV. I said, man, I thought that guy was dead. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's not unusual. I mean, people have a tendency to wander in their own minds sometimes, I guess. So
1: I'll ask both of you this question. Where, does the, where do the fabulous ones rank in the greatest tag teams of all time?
2: Well, if you ask us.
1: Uh-oh, got a little frozen, oh. Steve. All
2: right, Stan, you're on. They froze up. <laughs> oh, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got an answer because I'm a realist. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I, I don't underplay us. But, you know, Stan has his side too. So let Stan tell you. Well. Well,
1: Steve, you kind of froze up. What was
2: your answer? You froze there for a well, second. Well, my answer is there's just too many to put a label on the greatest tag team. I mean, you know, they're just endless. I just uh, – I sent Stan a, an art rendering just that I saw on Face, uh, Facebook just today, and it was the Road Warriors opponents. And it's got the Road Warriors in an art rendering, and they're facing all of these tag teams. And they're some of the greatest tag teams of all times. And they're looking back at them. But a lot of those tag team people are really close friends of mine. And I was sending it everywhere to the guys that are still alive going, hey, you might not have seen this, but, you know, they honored you, you know, and just being the Road Warriors opponents or whatever. But it was a montage. And then when you see all of that, I mean, you know, I look at it, we were a great tag team, and I and I loved being partners with Stan. And we were very successful. Were we the greatest? Well, who would ever know? Because that it was just limited to a couple of territories. We never really went on the mainstream WWF back in the day. We never hit the big WCW together. We would have been prior to the little miniature guys like the rock and roll express and uh fanics or the fantastics or whatever they were we were prior to the midnight rockers but we were more mature we were more manly looking so but we were still in our 30s which made us really young eddie graham told me when i started wrestling fans would not accept me as our serious Butt whipper until I was 30 plus, and I had a few dings on me like I had taken some beatings to achieve my experience in that ring, and now I'm a veteran. And that always made sense to me. So it depends on the era you're talking about, and it depends on the comparisons. But when I think of Jim the Anvil Nightheart, and Bret Hart, and when I think about, I mean, DiBiase and Mike rotundo and, I, you know, there's just so many tag teams out there, Demolition, the Road Warriors. I mean, the list is endless. So there were, I say there was a lot of great tag teams. I don't say we were the greatest, but I said we held our own, and we had respect from all of them because guess what? We ended up working with ninety percent of them, and if we didn't have respect, they wouldn't have sold us. They wouldn't have worked with us, and they, you know, they wouldn't have been gentle on us. I remember working with Doctor Death and Steve Williams, Steve Williams and Jim um, Knight. I mean, um, uh, what's his name? Hacksaw Jim Duggan. We went to Oklahoma to work for Bill Watts. And here we are, the fabulous ones, and we come in there to work against the two toughest guys in the territory. And, I mean, you know, it's like, uh-oh. I mean, you know, this is going to be a night when somebody's just going to jerk us around. And they worked with us and gave us the utmost respect. And, and you know, we bounced all over and put them over and everything like that. But back back in our era and the territory things, everybody was really, to me, a great worker. I mean, you know, you, you never had to worry about that. If somebody was a lame worker, it was a one or a two in the whole territory. Well, I Steve, mean,
1: set me straight on something. You mentioned the road wars. Again, we all know the sure. stories when supposedly they were supposed to drop the AWA titles to you and Stan. Being an old school guy, if that story is true, why did you accept the fact that they wouldn't follow the promoters rules?
2: Because that's not the way I was raised. I wasn't raised to go to the ring and go against the guy that's paying me and not do what I'm told. I'm a soldier. I'm a soldier that works for an army general. The army general pays me. And whatever the army general asks me to do, I'm going to do it. And if he asks me to get beat, then I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability to make my opponent look better. That's the whole nature of the wrestling business. It's what happens is guys' egos get in the way, and they really start believing that there's something that they're really not. The business is a work. I mean, you know, the road warriors were very difficult to deal with, but it was mostly Hawk, and he was kind of hot-headed, but he was just very green, and he's working with guys that are veterans they are willing to do anything in the ring, but we're not willing to change the finish on a territory from the boss from what we were told to do when we came into the ring. I'm not willing to relinquish and go along with them. They're not paying me, and I know that when I come back from that dressing room, I'm going to have to answer for that. So uh, you guys are supposed to go over what happened. You lost. Well, they told us to. (laughs) What do you mean they told you to? You you mean to tell me now the other team tells you, hey, man, we don't want to lose tonight, so you're losing. What? (laughs) Well, that's kind of how it happened. I mean, you know, me and Stan are bouncing around. We're on cloud nine. We did not see this many people in our whole career in this (laughs) uh, Minneapolis Coliseum. And everybody's freaking out we don't even know what we are now we got chaps on we got bow ties we got Japanese stuff on we got every kind of gimmick that we own we went out there we weren't even sure what we were at that time just trying to be like entertainers and now we got two guys that are telling us "Oh, just do it our way and nobody gets hurt Mm -hmm. well I'm in another world. When I start, I'm bouncing around, feeling the ropes. I'm looking for holes in the mat. I'm looking for things that are going to hurt me. And I hear that. And my first response is, what? I don't know if I heard that right. Right? Am I deaf? Did I just hear we're not doing it? And if we do it your way, we won't get hurt. And then mm. I made the mistake of getting up there and going, what'd you say? And then boom, next thing I know, I'm getting beat up for about the next 10 minutes. And it just... You know, it snowballed, but we outsmarted them. We sure did. <laughs> Whenever I tell Stan, hey, pack your bag. We're not going back to the dressing room. We're leaving straight from the building. Stan would just look at me and go, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? I don't know, but we'll figure it out as we go. I mean, you, it's a it's a battle. You know what wrestling is? Wrestling is reality. It's a play school game of king on the mountain for money. And real deal your income and you're playing king on the mountain your whole career you're always trying to climb the mountain to get farther up the card and halfway up people are pulling you by the legs trying to pull you down whether it's talking about you in cars whether it's creating rumors about you, whether it's putting you down, oh, he had horrible matches, oh, I can't work with the guy, whatever it is. But you're fighting that battle the whole time. Once you get on top of that mountain, now you're just trying to kick everybody off that's coming up after you. And everybody's targeting you, no matter if it's a political target that they're putting on you, no matter if it's a personal thing, saying, you. you know, you're, you're gay or whatever you are or something to just try to trash you in a dressing room and just anything to do to put you down, they're going to do it. So you're playing king on the mountain the whole time. Road Warriors, they were just another obstacle, but I loved them. I got along great with them, except for when we had turned on them. And two nights, Hawk wanted to kill me, but other than that, we hugged all the time. Mm.
1: Stan, what were you, what was your feelings about that match?
2: You know,
3: I I was thinking a short while ago, and and I could be wrong, but but I was I worked with the Road Warriors perhaps more than anybody else because I worked with the Road Warriors with Steve, the fabulous ones, a lot, and then I, I worked with them again. With with Bobby the Midnight Express, I not, so I, I worked with him with two tag teams, quite a bit. So I I may have had more frequent flyer mileage than anybody you know taking those those press slams. But um, as far as as the ratings of the Fab, I mean that that's like Steve said, it, it'd be too tough. I I'd, I'd put us in the top top thirty, but you know I, I would never say we were, you know, in the top five or ten or or whatever. I mean. You know, uh, the Midnight Express were a great tag team too. I, I, I feel Bobby was one of the greatest workers of all time. But um, absolutely, uh, the Road Warriors—they uh, just—they never really grasped the fact that you know, to get heat, you, you can't go out there and tell the fans, the people, in your, your interviews, that, that you're going to kick somebody's butt, and then you go out there and you kick their butt. Well, that's not—that's not being a heel. That's being a babyface. You told them what you're going to do, and you did it. You know, it, it, they could have gotten tremendous heat looking the way they did. And and, and if you really got got tough with them and fought back, and, and then they finally maybe a little bit of a cowardice showed up in them. Of course, they would have never done that because they were too – I mean, their their minds were, you know, we're tough and it's legit, so we couldn't do that. But can you imagine the heat that they would have gotten if – if, if they would have just shown a little bit of cowardice, the people would go, look at – those guys are big and huge, and look at them. They're really – when it gets down to them, when they go and get tough, you know, they, they got a little bit of wimp in them. But that that never happened. They 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 finally, I think, kind of smartened up towards the end. And, and, and they were both great guys. You know, we, we got along good with them. But we had a few little run-ins. But, you know, all in on, all, in all they, were, they were nice guys. They just – they just believe that they're, they're a gimmick. They were both bouncers, I think, at a, a nightclub, and they they fought a lot. And they just said, "Well, you know, in real life, you know, the Fabulous ones couldn't beat us up in real life." Well, you know what? Wrestling is not real life. Wrestling is make believe. It's mm-hmm. fantasy. That's what you got to give the people the fantasy. They come there after after working five days a week, and then they want to want to immerse themselves in that fantasy world. And it's and you gotta you gotta play your part. And, uh, you know, Hawk and Animal had had a hard time not playing the part of we're legitimately tough and we're always going to be tough and we're going to win every match we get into and nobody's going to beat us.
1: It's a great (laughs) point. It's a great point. So we're towards the end. I want to thank you for this honor. Real quick, I was talking to Stan before the show. And, Steve, you know, you're you're doing the circuit. Uh, Legends like yourself, you know, are now getting the flowers and the opportunity to make some – you know, meet you know meet the fans that adore them and thank them like you like both of you, um, and you know, you, you get you're getting some decent paydays for it, which is well deserved. So I'm bringing on a promoter who's bringing you guys Ooh, in. K. The, K. Fame. There's your there's your man Eric Sims <laughs> there. Steve. How are you guys? A hey, face up, a face only Jesus would love. Um <laughs> <laughs> so eric wants to promote your guys uh next signing before we get off the air
0: so we're doing all right eric old... hey how are you how are you steven And Stan? Pleasure uh, awesome to meet you good yeah, to see yeah. you well, pleasure <laughs> so we're doing an old school autograph signing down in um winston-salem north carolina on february 3rd and we're going to reunite the fabulous ones for the first time in a long time at um we're going to do it at the Cooks uh, Flea Market, uh, Battle Axe Toys Booth M M fifty, and uh, we're gonna, we're going to reunite not not only not only Steve Kern and Stan Lane, but we're going to bring in Dr. Tom Pritchard, also do right. uh, a fabulous one in Heavenly Bodies, uh, you know, reunion over over there, and hopefully a lot of fans show up, and uh, you know we're going to have a good old time for uh for a couple hours on Saturday, February third. Looking forward to it, Eric.
3: It's going to be great seeing seeing Tom again. I I don't see Tom all that much. I've seen Steve a a lot more, but but uh, the Heavenly Bodies were, were were trendsetters in Smoky Mountain wrestling for a while. And, and when I finally uh, retired, when I'd had enough of driving up and down those mountains in Smoky Mountain, and, and it got I'd gotten tired of those people in Harlan, Kentucky, and Hazard, Kentucky, threatening to stab me with a knife. I I backed away and I gave my <laughs> oh, the good old
0: days.
1: So, let me help you out here a little bit, Eric. So, for the fans that can't actually get to the event, is there a possibility they may be able to get a signed autograph of this iconic tag team?
0: Absolutely. I have tons and tons of Fabulous One photos. I have um, heavenly body photos. I have singular shots of them all. I even have a hat. I even have the bow tie that they're going to sign.
2: I got, what the hell? I got the
0: gloves. <laughs> I I am fully prepared for this for this sign. So I spend no expense. I've got. Let me see that. Let me see that hat. <laughs> listen, it's the best, it's the it's the best that I can afford that it. Amazon can give me in bulk. That's a black Irish hat, it looks like. It looks <laughs> like a gangster, in New jersey. A hat, that looks a like a Laurel
1: and Hardy hat there, Steve. Yeah. I don't even know what that
0: is. God damn it. It's a you know, for for the price that I wanna pay, it's uh you know, easy to sign up there. Like, they can sign the boat they can sign the bow ties and they can, they can sign and inscribe the gloves, you know. Absolutely, i sign everything.
2: You see what you you're know, missing out on, Stan? There, yeah. You see what you're there's missing out on?
0: Last time <laughs> I was <laughs> with <laughs> there. Not Last to mention, my... also, Steve also did Skinner in WWE, you know, so we have, we have the booty <laughs> you know, we have, we, have, we have more of them to sign, sign too, you know? <laughs> Uh, That's what I was gonna say.
2: Last time I worked for him, while was signing Bowie knives. Now I'm signing uh, Laurel and Hardy hats. Thank don't God. matter. Let, let, how, how
0: does this look, how does this look on me? Let's see if I can let's see if I can put this. Well, is it good enough here? So I put the yeah, we'll put on that hat on. No,
2: put you know what? Wait that a
0: minute. You. you know what I just found
1: hey. out? If you guys have what? a six man tag team. You could call yourself the flabberous ones, right, if you had no, Eric D.A.T. So well, <laughs> yeah, 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 there you
0: go. You know, if, you, if you remember, if you look at the, if you look at the photos, right. like, you can see them, suspenders, gloves. And I got other pictures where they're wearing hats. You know. <laughs> so, All like,
1: right. Well, well Eric, uh-huh. gonna, we got to let the, these two gentlemen go. They've been more than uh, –
0: Wonderful. One
2: thing that I want to say about that and appearing with Eric and I appreciate Eric putting us together because that. I I still travel and I'm doing a lot of these things. And the one thing that's really missing in the ingredient for me traveling is having Stan there and tra- Stan doesn't travel anymore and I respect that. And Eric made arrangements to take us closer to Stan so we could do this. But this was a compliment to me personally, because this might be one of the only opportunities I get to be with Stan, because if unless a promoter puts us together, for us to be uh, making appearance together, it's got to be up there close to stand, and so this might be one of our last opportunities to actually appear together as the tag team, the Fabulous Ones. And if you look at our original Remco dolls now, I mean, when we when, we, when those first came out, those action figures. I was so I was so um, impressed, and I was so honored, and I was humbled. But I went and bought them all at to- Toys R Us, and I've even had Sand, Stein several of the ones that I kept that weren't you know unwrapped or whatever. But I went on eBay and looked at the price. I bought them for like four ninety five a piece in Minneapolis when they first came out, and I've seen them as high as fifteen hundred dollars. Mm. So a real true collector and a historian for pro wrestling that would have an opportunity to have Stan and I sign something together First of all, it's a blessing from God Almighty that we're both still alive and healthy and can do this kind of a thing, but it's also a blessing from Eric to to have us together, and I totally appreciate it, Eric. I appreciate where you're coming from. You know, I'll uh, sign anything but girls' underwear. That's the only thing I'm drawing a line on.
0: You know, I, I, I worked with Steve back in December for the first time, and I got I got to say, it. you know, it, when you're working with different talent, it, you know, it's... You know, it's a feeling out process the first time because, you know, it's just, you don't know how they're going to be and this and that. And the minute he got in the car with me and he just started talking and telling stories, and I said to myself, this is going to be one of the best trips ever. And, you know, <laughs> I, I got to say, it was one of the best tours I've had because, my God, just being on the Thank learning you. tree of Steve was like, just unbelievable. And then on top of that, we had Tony Atlas in the car. And I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, tough. Tony drove you crazy the whole
2: fucking trip. Tell him what he said to me. Finally, he kept saying stuff. Tony's a, a liberal Democrat, and I'm a diehard Republican, but I don't talk politics. But he's rambling on in the front seat, and I'm doing everything I can to bite my lip and just get along. And I finally tried to butt in one time to get something, and he turns and says, Steve, Steve. Two people don't sing at the same time, and two people sure can't talk at the same time. And I shut my mouth the rest of the time, and I just thought, and I, I, and I, Wait a minute. And I he that oh, Hey, let Steve <laughs> talk.
0: Give him the. Let him talk. He has an opinion too. I mean, goddamn. I mean, you no. Know, <laughs> you know, just he's just raveling on. He just keeps going. He loves you, but the, he just raveling on and on and on and on.
3: All right, yeah. with that you know,
0: will help get, them in something, something. <laughs> get with in that,
1: that, Stan and Steve, thank you for taking the time out to have this interview. What an honor it is to have both of you on the show
2: um well, thank you,
1: thank you both what you've done for the industry, and uh I wish you guys only the best. God bless
2: well, thank you, and God thank- bless you and God bless you, Stan <laughs> see you soon.
1: Hey, why don't you guys tag uh, each other out? Can you can you tag? Nope, other hand. There you go. There you go. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the great, fabulous ones. Love the interview. Again, I thank you all for joining us uh, this Thursday. I love you all. I want to, again, thank the fabulous ones. I want to thank Eric Sims, obviously, Abe. I want to thank you for another great show. Um, and, again, we'll see you next Thursday. Have a good one.